Welcome to From the View Box with Hal and Chris. This is the podcast of the UMass Medical School Department of Radiology. My name is Hal Lowe from the Division of Emergency Radiology. And I am Christopher Cernelia from Musculoskeletal Imaging. We continue our discussion with Professor Frank Levy, this time discussing the end of the bubble years. All right, Frank. So um, Max just mentioned a, a kind of uh, something about the impact of um, new technologies, new, te- new technologies. And in the 90s, uh, right now it's AI, but in, in the 90s, that was really PACS, right? So picture archive and communication systems, that was the new hot thing in the 90s. What, is, uh, what, what was the impact of PACS and what was your take on uh, that new technology in the 90s? Well, I, I think it, in terms of impact, I think it was a, a double-edged sword. Um, on the one hand, it, it enabled radiologists to be much more efficient because they could read more studies and get more detail and so on. On the other hand, um, it allowed radiologists to move away from the center of patient care in the hospital. I mean, there was always this kind of tension because radiologists in the end were kind of paid on the basis, roughly speaking, of how many studies they read. And so the idea that a doctor could just, a physician could just drop in and start talking to you about a patient, in some ways it was good, in some ways it was an interruption. So once you began to have the digital transfer of images, you began to see reading rooms kind of move to the exterior part of the hospital. And on the one hand, it, it was a lot less interruptions there. On the other hand, it kind of moved you out of some of the big decisions and had some of the main patient flow. I, I have to say that in, in talking about PACS, there was one great story that we were given by uh, Paul Chang, who at, at the time that he was doing this work was at Pittsburgh and now is at Chicago. Um, he had installed, he wanted to go without film and install the packs. And they did install the packs at Pittsburgh. He was kind of on the leading edge of the technology, but it was very expensive. And, and it, it involved big workstations because you had to have something that could hold the whole study in the unit that was sitting on the desk. And it, it involved very heavy cabling, which hospitals didn't have. You had to install that fresh. And so if the idea was that many departments wanted to be able to look at images, he, you know, that would break the bank. He couldn't figure out how to make it cheaper. And then he got his inspiration one day because of a hobby of his. It turns out that he is one of these real high-fi guys. He was, he, and, and when I say real high-fi, he was the kind of guy who felt that the tube amplifiers gave a much richer sound than transistor amplifiers. He was still buying amplifiers that work with vacuum tubes rather than transistors. And he said, I I know you're going to say I'm crazy. My wife says I'm crazy. You just have to bear with me on this. So it turns out that he was going to a place. He was about to order another amplifier. He was going to a place and it just struck him to, he asked the guy, well, what, I mean, where do you store all these tubes and where do you store all these parts? I mean, they're very fragile. How do you do this stuff? And the guy looked at him and said, we don't have a big inventory. We use just-in-time manufacturing. And Paul said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, when we have an order, we tell our supplier, we get a few parts, and that's what we need to put this thing together, and that's how it works. And Paul said, that moment, I realized that that same thing applied to my problem, that there was no radiologist looks at a whole study at one instant. Rather, they look at, at, at some images, some slices, 
and then they move on to the next set of slices. So if there was a way of sort of keeping the whole study in one place, but just transferring slices and then back, you could do this whole operation throughout the hospital with a lot less hardware and everything. You use lighter cabling and lighter equipment. And so he developed this dynamic transfer syntax, which then became immediately spread throughout the whole industry. And that allowed PACs to really percolate through the whole hospital. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a, and that's a, that's a great story. And that, uh, that, that kind of demonstrates some of the innovation that, uh, we've seen in radiology quite a bit. I mean, also side note about Paul Chang. He, he, he was one of my personal attendings when I was a resident at University of Chicago. He had just moved there for uh, a year or two previous. And he used to tell us some of these stories about uh, when he, uh, quote unquote, invented or his team invented essentially the first uh, marketable PAC system um, that eventually was purchased um, by Philips. And incidentally, we used to use, at UMass Memorial, we used to use one of the sort of legacy uh, daughter systems uh, from his, Paul Chang's original um, Centaur packs. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, okay, so now, so we've just finished this discussion about the bubble years of radiology in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, the, the effect of uh, the Clinton healthcare uh, reform um, defeat, um, and then also the, 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 the importance of that tight labor market in the, in the late 90s. Uh, and interestingly enough, I will expect that all, all of our listeners, when they hear Chris and I talk about uh, uh, the hog and corn market, <laughs> hopefully they will understand what we're talking about now that they've heard this segment. Um, Let's, let's go on to the last piece of your four-part uh, series, which is entitled The End of the Bubble. So, you know, any, any growth story has to end somewhere. You can't grow forever. Uh, and that, that is the story of radiology as well. Um, tell us, what is, what is uh, your perspective and what are the sort of the factors, the causes of the end of the, end of the radiologist growth bubble? Um. Well, there were a number of different things. I think the, the one place to start is at the macroeconomic level. Um, the, unlike today, or unlike the last four years, where nobody seemed to care about the government deficit, uh, in, in the early 2000s, there was still a lot of congressional concern about trying to keep the deficit under control. And uh, you had had a, a tax cut right after 9-11. You were fighting wars now in, in Afghanistan and in Iraq and so on. And uh, there were, you know, the deficit was getting a lot bigger. And finally, forces in Congress said, we got to do something about this. We got to start cutting. And there was agreements to cut basically across the board, including in, in Medicare. And, and when it came time to look at pieces within Medicare, uh, there was general recognition that radiologists had done very well over the last 10 years. Now, originally, as things got down to the final pieces of legislation, it was assumed that, that the Medicare cuts would be concentrated in Medicare Advantage. And in the last night of negotiation, the word came from the White House, do not touch Medicare Advantage. We're not going to touch that. And so there was quick scrambling around for other places to cut, and, and radiology was the place to cut, the reimbursements on radiology. That's where you started to see the first big cut 
And it took the ACR and everybody else by surprise. They thought that wasn't going to happen. Now, even as that started, you began to see other things building up that, that were slowing the growth of radiology. And that after that, it just was sort of one thing after another. There began to be a lot of worry that excessive numbers of CT scans would build up. There was real danger from that, medical danger from being exposed too much to CT scans and that sort of spread through USA Today and other places as well as the professional journals. Um, the 2008 recession had a big impact, sort of superimposed on all the rest of this stuff in, in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, suddenly a whole bunch of people didn't have health insurance anymore. And because they, their health insurance was attached to their job and unemployment went way up in, in, that, in that recession, in the Great Recession. But the other thing was that, that a lot of radiologists who in the, were in the cohort who were expecting to retire fairly soon saw their 401ks really wiped out in the short run by the fall in the stock market. And so they said, well, forget about retirement. We have to keep on working. And so the number of vacancies you might have otherwise expected didn't materialize. And so it was a, a situation where suddenly, both because of, of slowdown in the growth of studies and because of suddenly more people staying longer, the market really began to fall apart. And then after that, Congress continued to make cuts and reimbursements. And that, that really sort of continues up through the present. Great. That's yeah. That so it seems like there was uh, again another uh, one. One piece of it was that there was also a, another uh, misalignment of the that corn and hog cycle again, where uh, what was uh, a decade prior a shortage uh, of radiologists and a tight market for uh, of radiologists. Uh, you know, fast forward ten years in the first decade of, the, uh, of this century, seems like there was an oversupply for multiple reasons. Uh, including 9/11, including Deficit Reduction Act, and then of course 2008, the Great Recession. We, we, Chris and I certainly lived through that and remember that uh, very uh, clearly. And it's you know the impact of that uh, on radiologists seems like it, it was even um, a larger impact than maybe other medical special specialties and, and and other physician groups even. I, I should add one more thing, which I forgot. Um, you know, we talked about the bubble years, and, and uh, one of the things that, that happened that started there and continued through the um, early 2000s, continues to this day, was the whole use of RBMs and prior authorizations. I mean, in the late 80s, uh, you, you began to get your first, very first experimental RBMs uh, that ended up, those models didn't go anywhere. They, they were really putting all the risk on radiologists. But after that, you began getting the kind of RBM you have now, where it's just prior authorization um, and, and you just can't do an image without getting approval. And again, it was a question of insurance companies saying, well, you know, this thing is just going crazy and we can't keep on keeping up with this. We can't just sort of passively adapt to this thing. And we're going to try and cut down by directly limiting the number of studies. Um, and that's sort of the spread of RBMs. And, and for our all our listeners, RBMs that refers to radiology benefit managers, which uh, right is one as we know is one uh, technique for insurers to reduce imaging utilization and their their therefore reduce the, the cost paid uh, to the imaging segment of, of, of healthcare. 
One factor that you did mention uh, was the effect of teleradiology and sort of uh, external competition on what was generally thought to be um, a radiologist's job, not, not, just, not just from uh, teleradiology, but even from outsourcing of radiology mm -hmm. services. Mm -hmm. you, know, you are one of the experts on that topic. What was the effect of uh, those competitive forces on the radiology business? Well, I think again, it, it the sense is that teleradiology um, kind of amplified what was going on in the market, either way, on the upside or the downside. First of all, you know, you want to think about um, teleradiology as as being a kind of natural outgrowth of what was going on inside the hospital anyway. It was the same digital networks that allowed reading rooms to move out to the, to move away from the centrality of, of the patient care. Um, the first teleradiology places uh, were developed in the bubble and, and during the, during the bubble years. And uh, the idea was it was really a kind of service because you had a situation where the market was tight as it could be. And, so one of the competitive issues was when you were hiring new radiologists was the question about, are you required to take night call or not? And um, the, here was a service that was being built up. I guess one of the first people in there was a, was a lovely guy named Paul Berger, who again has an interesting story. Most radiologists have at least one interesting story. And, and <laughs> Paul's story was that he was involved in a very successful um, practice in, in Long Beach, I think, but certainly in Southern California. And um, one day he came home and his wife, who he loved dearly, who was very supportive, said, you know, it's really time to move. And he said, what's that about? He, she said, well, I, I think we should just move to someplace different. He said, where? She said, I don't know, Coraline, Idaho. That looks pretty, that looks nice, you know, so on. So they packed up and eventually moved to Coeur Idaho. And then he was looking around for things to do. He had kind of was doing some work with a radiology practice there and so on. But he came up with this idea that the, that the web was now, uh, could now handle shipping images. And so they could um, read images at night if they could work out the timing. That is to say, station radiologists in places where they would be, in, in, you know, it would be daytime wherever they were. And they would be taking what had been night calls, which a lot of practices didn't want to do. And it turned out to be a recruiting disadvantage if you said to a new person, well, yes, you'll have to take night call a couple of times a week. So they, they began to kind of perfect the idea. And he tells this story about they finally, when they were ready to go to try and attract business, they got a list of radiologists uh, and they put this postcard together. And the postcard had a, a picture of some disheveled person on it who was supposed to be a radiologist and the question was who's taking night call tonight and the answer was we are and he said we sent all these things out and we figured if we got 20 responses in the first couple of weeks we'd be doing fine well I got 300 responses in the first week and he said you know at that moment I knew that we had something now in that sense the market was so tight that nobody no hospital would think about using teleradiology to compete with their local radiologists because they just couldn't afford to antagonize local radiologists. Radiologists were so hard to come by. But as the market got slacker, 
after 2008 into 2010, so on and so forth, then you began to see firms not cooperating with local radiologists as Berger was doing in the super tight market, but competing and saying to a hospital, hey, you don't like your local group? Use us, we'll manage it for you. And so it, it was, again, kind of amplifying uh, the, what was going on in the market to begin with. Yeah, and that, that is a great, thank you. That's a great explanation of where teleradiology came from. I mean, every practicing radiologist and all of our residents and medical students now tend to know about teleradiology because it's, it's so per- pervasive and it's, it's in, uh, you know, we, it's very mainstream now. But uh, that, that is great perspective on how teleradiology started because, uh, you know, prior to that point that you're discussing right now, that this was a very new, that's, this is a very, uh, very new business model, right? <laughs> and, and right, it was a new business. Right. business model. Absolutely. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting From the Viewbox. We've attached additional reading materials to the episode notes as provided by our guest. And please visit us at www.umassmed.edu backslash radiology. Thank you to our colleagues Charlene Barron, Tom Delaney, and Dan Ramsaran for their technical assistance. See you next time.